You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. My name is Blake. Uh, We're going to pray and get right to work. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us before we ever deserve to be loved. Thank you for loving those who have, through word and deed and thought, expressed hatred towards you and your creation. God, thank you for liking us. Thank you for thinking more highly of us than we've ever thought for ourselves. And God, thank you for suffering for us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for doing the things we couldn't do uh, so that we could live our lives for you and we could see you face to face one day. Please help us to know that that is the joy to which we are working, uh, that the work has been done, that our job is merely to live and to believe. To help us to see you serve you and to love you, to love others in this world as you do. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. It's great to have you guys. If you are a visitor, we have care cards in the bulletins or in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to just uh, fill those out when you can and learn how to pray and serve you. I'm going to read some scripture and then we'll get to work. This is uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 19 through 22. Uh, Paul is preaching the gospel around the world, and he's uh, in the town of Lystra. And it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is God's word. My name is Blake. Like I said, I'm the 3E Restoration Minister for Williamsburg Christian Church. I'm pretty new here, so I'm still learning names and learning the ropes. I'm sorry if I don't uh, get your name right. I'll probably just sort of nod at you and smile while you're talking to me and agree with everything you say. Uh, So just uh, bear with me for that. Uh, What I've been brought on to do, what the 3E uh, Restoration Ministry is, is what we're trying to do. We're trying to work with the uh, impoverished and some of the homeless in our community um, to walk with them all the way from homelessness uh, to self-sufficiency. And we have a very holistic approach to this. It's going to be very all-inclusive. We've got um, friends from the congregation who are going to be willing to provide for needs when they arise. We're working with government and social services, uh, places to get them what they need, either Medicaid and welfare to United Way and Salvation Army, giving them uh, clothing and food. Uh, The congregation has been asked on multiple occasions and has responded very well with providing them with everything from utensils to furniture to food to clothing to cleaning supplies, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, And I want you to understand a couple of things. First of all, there's no place, no church at least, in uh, Williamsburg that's doing what we're doing. A lot of places can provide stopgap healing measures, provide money, funding, uh, a little bit of material items when necessary, but we are really leading the charge uh, and getting other churches interested and invested in this concept of walking completely from uh, all the way from poverty to self-sufficiency with these people. 
And uh, a second thing you need to know is that it's working, and it's working very well. One of the people in the program, our friend Frank, already has a job. So that's a praise that we can be grateful to God for. God is good. Our friend Doug is pounding pavement every day. I never see him. I live with the two of them. I never see him except for like 7 p.m. He's out putting in applications. We've got people, friends uh, in the congregation helping them uh, work their resumes and send out applications to various places. So we're doing a great job. And what you need to understand is that uh, there's a lot of service and a lot of sacrifice that's been going into this. Uh, I'm living with Frank and Doug to help them make rent, as I said. I'm right now in a missionary capacity, which means I need to raise my own support. Um, the congregation has stepped up and, and donated both items and money. And really at the heart of all this is Fred. Fred, our lead minister who's out on vacation right now, uh, is is really helping us. Uh, he, he cast a vision for this a long time ago. He's, he's brought in uh, his experience and he's worked with people around the community to develop this program. And he's leading this charge and we're, I'm really grateful to him. And what's interesting is that I've known Fred for a really long time and I think that just the story of him and me and how we met is a great testament uh, to God's goodness. So I wanna share that with you. About five years ago, Fred was in Athens, Georgia, as the campus minister for a ministry uh, for the University of Georgia, and he was really good at it. When he got there, there were about eight dedicated people coming to every Wednesday night service that they had, and by the time he left, it was almost 100. Fred knew what he was doing. He knew how to interface with kids. He knew how to get them excited. He knew how to pick out leaders from within the group to keep things going. <clears throat> and so he was doing a great job, and I want you to know we know, every minister here knows, that it's not really about the numbers, but boy, they don't hurt. And it's a really good thing that, that God, you can see results when God is moving, and it really builds enthusiasm, and it helps other people get invested in the ministry. So Fred was doing a great job, but he didn't feel like he was doing his whole job. He felt like he could be doing more. Because you see, Athens, Georgia is one of the poorest counties in the entire nation, and sociologists and social workers uh, use something they call the Jenny Index to, to rate this. They, it takes the highest incomes and measures them against the lowest incomes in a community. And Athens, Georgia, at that time, had the highest disparity between rich and poor in the entire country. And you can see this just walking around downtown. And Fred saw this. And he learned that just outside of downtown, there was a bridge and about half a dozen homeless people had made their camps under there. So the Holy Spirit pricked his heart, and Fred decided to start taking them food. He and his wife, Allison, started going under this bridge and giving these people food, nothing much, just a pizza here and there, but it was food that they weren't getting otherwise, and it was food they didn't have to panhandle for. And if you've done any homeless ministry, you know that this is actually kind of a dangerous thing to do. I don't really want to cast uh, too wide a brush, I don't want to stereotype, but being homeless means getting into a whole new mindset. It means getting into an idea of survivalism and fight or flight that we don't have to deal with when we have central air. So these people, you know, a strange person coming in that they've never seen to their camp could just as well be somebody ready to rob them of what few dollars they have because that's something they have to deal with on a regular basis as it could be anyone else. So this was dangerous. And there were actually some times when Fred went to Allison and said, I'd really like for you to stay in the car this time. Let me go along, because I do believe they're being a little rowdy. 
And no one would have blamed Fred if he hadn't done this. No one would have blamed Fred if all he wanted to do was be an incredible campus minister. But the Holy Spirit pricked his heart and enticed him, compelled him to do more. And because of it, God was glorified because he believed in Jesus, because he saw Jesus' message, because he called himself a Christian. And, I, and we don't hear about it much anymore. But the word Christian has a really good pedigree for service and for suffering. What we hear on the news is, is you know, Christians asking for political rights or, or, you know, reacting to changes in American infrastructure that they don't like. But really, Christianity for the past 2,000 years has had a large hand in shaping and changing the way people think about other people, about the least and the last and the lost. And really, Christianity uh, almost invented the concept of caring for people who couldn't care for themselves, caring for the dying, caring for people that could never repay for you. I was reading in a journal called the Christian Medical Fellowship. It is just what it says it is. And uh, one of the articles said the following thing. It said, in the second century, when plague hit the city of Carthage, pagan households threw sufferers onto the streets. And the entire Christian community, personally led by their bishop, responded. They were seen on the streets, offering comfort and taking them into their own homes to be cared for. A few decades after Constantine, Julian, who came to power in A.D. 355, was the last Roman emperor to try to reinstitute paganism. Julian said that if the old religion wanted to succeed, it would need to care for people even better than the Christians cared. I really love reading that. I really love the idea that somebody actually said, if you want to care for people, you're going to have to beat the Christians at it. If you want to love people, you got to do a better job than the Christians do. Sometimes I worry uh, with some of the reactionary things I read on blogs and see on television stations that some people think that a church is the last place they can go looking for help and hope and the first. And that grieves me. But it wasn't the case here. And I'll tell you, you don't have to look far or deep to see that it wasn't the case in other places. Mother Teresa spent a year asking her superiors for permission to go to Calcutta and start a mission called the Missionaries of Charity. And she said in a letter she wrote to them, I don't know what the end result will be, but if we have brought joy to one unhappy child, if we've kept one of them away from sin in the name of Christ, if we have let one man die right with Jesus, wouldn't it be enough? Because that would bring great joy to the heart of Jesus. And I don't know if you know this, but in the beginning of the Missionaries of Charity, the nuns gave away so much food that they themselves had to beg for their own food. That's Christian service. That's Christian setting the example, setting the bar really high. And you don't have to go, you know, to India to do this. There was a theologian named Henry Nowen, world-renowned, theologian, wrote multiple books. Every pastor you know has one of his books on his shelf. He taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. And while he was at one of those, he gave it all up, and he moved to Toronto, and he went to a hospice, and he spent years of his life cleaning and clothing and feeding a boy with mental deficiencies named Adam. I think he remembered and honored what Paul said when he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. 
And of course, there are extreme examples of this. You've got the, the martyrs from the 200s. Do you realize that in the beginning of the Christian church, pastors got up in front of their congregations and asked people not to seek their own martyrdom? They said, please don't get yourselves killed for the name of Christ. We need you here. There's a really great example. Uh, in the 1500s, there was a, a splinter group from the Catholic Church. You know, Catholicism, in, even in the 1500s, was the you know, 99% of, of all Christianity at the time. Probably less, but you know what I mean. Uh, and there was a splinter group called the Anabaptists. And Anabaptist means baptizing again, because these people believed that infant baptism was not preached in the Bible. And they believed in believer's baptism, baptizing adults who confess faith in Jesus Christ. And God loves and blesses and honors the Catholic Church, and we will see our Catholic brothers and sisters in heaven. I believe this. But, like everyone, they have made mistakes, they've made missteps, and they persecuted the Anabaptists. They persecuted some of them to death. And a man named Dirk Willems converted to Anabaptism, and he started converting others. And he started preaching about this, and he was arrested. And he was put in um, a prison that was made out of an old mansion. The old mansion had a moat going all around it. And since it was winter, the moat was frozen. And one day he escaped, and he ran away. He ran over the frozen moat, and the guards gave chase. And one of the guards fell through the ice, began to drown. And Dirk Willems, seeing it, hearing it, turned around and pulled the man out of safety, out to safety, and saved his life. And then he was arrested again. And then he was sentenced to die and he was burned at the stake. And there are a few ways you can think about this situation, a few ways you can rationalize to yourself why he would have done such a thing as that. The first way is maybe he thought, if I save this man, it will secure my release. Maybe I'll pull him out of the ice and he'll say, okay, uh, you have a five-minute head start. Thanks for saving my life. Or he'll say, I told, I'll tell him you went left when you actually went right. Maybe he thought that. Or maybe he thought saving this man will secure my doom. I know this guy. I know the Catholics, what they're doing here. And he'll capture me again. And I'll die for this. And that's a really noble thought. And that's something I can really get behind. But honestly, I think in order to do what he did, you have to be thinking something different. Or another way... I don't think he thought about it. I don't think he gave it a moment's notice. I don't think he stopped and contemplated what the personal ramifications of this action were going to be for him. I think he saw a man in need and he remembered what Jesus said. He remembered what Jesus did. And he remembered that Paul said in Romans 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even be willing to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he made his decision. And no one would have blamed Dirk Willems for not doing it. It would still be a great folktale if he hadn't. Oh, he got away. The frozen boat saved him. You might even say that God, you, you could say, and then God, wanting to spare Dirk Willems' life, let that man fall into the boat and let Dirk Willems escape. But nah. God had something better in mind. Dirk Willems was going to sacrifice himself and make Jesus look beautiful. Now to get back to Fred, 
he continues to go under the bridge, and he this is continuing to be a, uh, a dangerous situation. There's alcohol involved. Sometimes they're all really drunk. Sometimes there's a fight breaking out about whether or not someone stole something from the other. But he still goes. And eventually, his second-in-command, the uh, minister intern, Solomon, goes with him. And every once in a while, they, they need to leave because things are getting out of hand. But they still start to make relationships with these people. And they start to meet people, people who want to get out of their situation and don't know how. And he starts to meet a woman named Patty and a man named Amos. And he talks to them. He talks to them like they're real people. He tells them things about Jesus they'd never heard anyone say, even though they'd been to church. And soon they come to know Christ in a way they never have before, and he baptizes them. And after he baptizes them, he knows that he can't send his brother and sister in Christ back to the street, so he puts them up in a weekly hotel room. And sometimes he uses the campus ministry money to, to pay for that room, and sometimes he writes his own personal check so that the campus ministry is not too heavily burdened by it. He sacrifices himself, knowing that these people are not going to be able to repay him, at the very least for not a long time, because he, his heart has been pricked by the Holy Spirit. And eventually, college students going to this, uh, to this Wednesday night Bible service start to come with him. And it becomes the hands and feet ministry. It becomes systematized, and the church throws its weight behind the idea. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, every week, some college students led by Fred and Solomon take some food to these people under a bridge or behind the trees, uh, behind the the Hardys, or in the, the hotel rooms where they've put up Patty and Amos. And I'm sure... The kids in the in the college ministry have heard from the pulpit um, to serve others in the name of Jesus. But here they get an abject lesson. Here they get a hands-on lesson to see Christian service lived out. And we see that a lot in in the Bible. We know that the Bible speaks over and over again, not just about serving others, but for sacrificing for them for enduring hardships so that others don't have to, for enduring things that you can tolerate because others are so beaten down already. And Paul is a great example of this. And Paul is constantly explaining the need for this, especially to the Corinthian church. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know the church in Corinth just had a problem getting it over and over again. They had, they had problems because after Paul would preach to them, others, uh, you know, people from the Jewish council would come in and say, well, we're full-blooded Jews like he is, and we're better public speakers, so you need to listen to us while we tell you what you should really do. And Paul is constantly having to write letters to the Corinthian church to explain to them, uh, really, to defend his own ability to speak for him. He's the Corinthians, Second Corinthians largely is a defense of his own ministry and an explanation of why he should be listened to. And he says in chapter 11, beginning with verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm speaking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, 
in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he later says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Well, that's a weird boast. That's a weird resume, isn't it? You don't really, I mean, what other ways do we do this? This is not the way to get people interested. This is not the way to argue on your own behalf. You, don't, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't try out for the NFL and say, well, I've broken both of my arms, I've torn my ACL, and I have turf toe, whatever that is, you know. And if you were publishing a book, trying to get a book published, or if you wanted to uh, start a new business and needed an investor, you wouldn't start off by telling those people, uh, all the people that heard your pitch earlier and rejected you, would you? We're not a really, our culture isn't really interested in failure. There is one way. There's one way we're interested in failure. There's an anecdote that goes around the internet every once in a while. And it talks about a man who was, uh, who was born in Illinois, and he wanted to be a lawyer, but he failed the bar exam two or three times before he ever got it. And then he wanted to be a state senator. So he, he went for that, and he lost the race. And he finally got it later. Then he wanted to be a U.S. senator, and he lost the race for that, but he finally got it. And eventually, he became the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. That's a story we can get behind. We understand sacrifice. We understand loss. We understand pain if we can point to a very tangible material reward that it all was leading up to. But what was Paul's material reward? He got beheaded. That's what happened to his body. What was his reward, though? In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are preaching the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, and the high council captures them and beats them and orders them not to speak the name of Jesus. And Acts chapter 5 verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Well, how do you get counted worthy to suffer dishonor? What kind of idea is God playing at here? Have you heard of a pastor named Matt Chandler? He's a pastor in Texas, and he preaches to a thousand people, thousands of people a week. And his church has three different buildings that they all meet in, and he's sort of teleconference between all of them at once. But you probably haven't heard of him. And he's, uh, he's authored or co-authored a few books, and he's actually in demand to preach all across the world. He goes to Africa a lot and teaches uh, preachers how to preach there. But you might not have heard of him. But recently, about three years ago, USA Today sent a reporter down there to interview him because he got stage 3 anaplastic oligodendroglioma, which is brain cancer. And that's not really, I mean, it's, it's terrible, but it's not really unusual either. What was unusual, what was remarkable, what made USA Today interested was what he started saying from the pulpit, things like, I'm grateful that God thinks I'm worthy to experience this illness. And they went to him and they said, what do you mean by that? Why would, God want, why would God think you worthy enough to get cancer? And he said, I think God believes that I can have cancer. And if people see me with it, and they see my faith not falter, but grow, then they will know that my hope is not in this world. That I don't believe in Jesus and I don't love Jesus because my brain doesn't have cancer. I don't love Jesus because he's given me a wife and three children. I don't love Jesus because I'm a successful pastor. 
I love Jesus. He's enough. Maybe that's what suffering does. To get back to Fred, this hands and feet ministry is going full swing, and actually, I uh, joined this this Wednesday night Bible service at um, when I was a senior in college. And I didn't, I didn't, wasn't terribly interested. I was kind of wrestling with my faith. For me, up until that point, Christianity was just a set of intellectual proofs. You know, it was just a set of facts. There is a God. You shouldn't sin. Do this. Don't do that. And I mostly liked it that way. But if you set up Christianity as merely a mental exercise, every mental deficiency, every question you can't answer becomes a serious problem. So he got to know me as the guy who hung around after uh, Bible studies or when he made the mistake of asking a question in the middle of a Bible study, asking him a really tough question or giving him a really answer. Hey, Fred, um, how do I know it's Jesus talking to me and not just one of the voices in my head? Hey, Fred, is, this, will, this will answer a lot of questions. Is Judas in heaven or hell? You have two minutes. No. Um, <laughs> hey, Fred, uh, if God knows everything, what's the point of prayer? And if you know anything about Fred, you'll know that I received zero straight answers to those questions. And if you know me, or you'll come to know me, at the time, at least, that was intensely frustrating for me. But uh, God saw fit that I should have some complications in my life, some stress, and I wanted to throw myself into church work just to sort of take my mind off other things that were happening. So I started joining this hands and feet program. I started going under the bridge and taking people food. And your first time taking a homeless person food when you're wearing, well, not this, but, you know, a T-shirt and jeans that don't have holes in them and $60 Nikes and stuff, it's a, it's a weird experience. But I keep going, and I keep talking to these people, and I see their humanity, and I see that they're children of God, and they love them. And in my head, I go from, you know, the script I've been taught all my life, well, they should just get a job. To not really knowing how to interact with them because I feel they're so different from me. To seeing Clarence and Robert and Welbin and Angel. To seeing children of God. To seeing people that need help. People that I can help. And at the same time, Fred sent a message, a massive Facebook message to everybody in the, the ministry and said, if, if there's any way I can help you grow spiritually, let me know. And I did something I usually don't do. I really wish I could do more of this. I actually asked for what I wanted. And when you do that, every once in a while you get it. I said, if I had my druthers, you and me would meet once a week to talk about God. And Fred said, okay. And if you know Fred, you'll know he's a very busy guy, and his time is extremely valuable. But he saw fit to give me that time. And I asked some of those hard questions, and he gave me some answers, but a lot of them he couldn't. But he taught me that it wasn't absolutely crucial that I know everything. And at the same time, going under the bridge taught me a side of Christianity I hadn't seen, hadn't thought to see in a while. And I saw that need. And I saw in myself a desire to be somebody who could, who could fill that need. So me and Fred started talking about seminaries. And around that time, Fred went to the elders of the church and said, I really think we need to bring somebody on 
to really just devote a lot of energy towards helping these people reach self-sufficiency, helping them get the government programs they need, uh, helping them with their housing and food and all of that. And I know just the person. And so I interviewed with the elders, and I said, I just want you to know I'm not the best person for this job. And they said, yeah, we know. <laughs> like, you don't have to say it that quickly. But I got the job. And Fred took a chance on me. And the elders took a chance on me. They wrote checks that paid my first year's salary. Sight unseen. I had a BA in English education. I couldn't teach these people about Jesus. I could teach them how to use gerunds and where to put commas. But Fred said, I see something in him, and I want to nurture it. And I don't think that Fred knew I would end up here. I don't think that Fred knew that he would go to Texas and then go to Virginia, and I would go to Texas, and after three years in, in uh, getting a Master's of Divinity, he would call me and say, hey, remember when you were a restoration minister? You want to be that again? He didn't know. He didn't know what kind of seed he was planting. And praise God that he did it without knowing that he would ever benefit from it. Because God is going to benefit from it. And God's going to use it to benefit anecdotally here. That's what's happening. And I, I have really great things to say because this, this conversation I'm having with you is not a conversation of exhortation. I'm not asking you, go out and do this. This is a conversation of praise. I get to say with you, isn't it wonderful that we're already doing isn't it wonderful we're already doing this? Isn't it wonderful that our small groups are reaching out to the communities and helping people? Isn't it wonderful that when Fred helps Doug and Frank get a house and says, puts out on Facebook, hey, they need some stuff, within an hour, every need is filled. Isn't it wonderful that last week we got to share in the joy that said a, a man in a neighborhood where one of us lives has cancer, and we sent him food, and he said thank you, and he knows that we did it on behalf of Jesus, and that's true, we did it on behalf of Jesus, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, this is a very novel idea, this is a very unusual idea among religions, among philosophies, Buddhism, Buddhism teaches that the appropriate response to suffering is to sort of transcend it, to sort of stop believing that it's there. That the entire material world is an illusion that you just got to get over. You just have to forget that you're even suffering. And I actually had a professor at seminary say, if you want to eliminate suffering from your life, you should become a Buddhist. But if you want to meet God, you should be a Christian. And Hinduism has a system. Hinduism, you know, basically the official religion of India, or a philosophy that has you know, pervaded India for centuries, teaches that if you are poor and destitute and sick, it's because of something you did in a previous life. So they can actually step over dying people in the streets there because they understand that their God has decreed that this should be so. But we worship a God who saw a man by a well, excuse me, saw a man by a healing pool, who had all kinds of excuses for why he hadn't gotten up, for why he hadn't sought it on he saw a Samaritan woman by a well who had been ostracized by her entire community. And he talked to her. Even though as a woman, that was enough. 
that she shouldn't be talked to. He saw a man born blind, and when his disciples asked him, was it his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? He said, no, he was born blind so that the glory of God could be revealed in him. And I know that I might have caused a little bit of uh, cognitive dissonance, a little bit of confusion in the brain, if I'm mentioning uh, getting stoned in the same in the same sermon as getting people pizza. And I want you to realize that persecution of Christians is still extremely real. Um, i got to share this with you. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is a Christian missionary and apologist, and he was talking about Richard Dawkins, who is you know, an atheist activist. He's a scientist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he is you know, just flagrantly anti-religion. And he said, uh, there was a rally in Washington, D.C. where Richard Dawkins said, if somebody is religious, walk with them, talk with them, try to explain to them the truth of science and how religion is wrong. And if they will not accept it, you should mock them and ridicule them and count them as less than yourself. And Ravi Zacharias said, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there because I would have looked them in the eyes and said, I think that's a great idea. I want to help you. I'm buying you a plane ticket to Saudi Arabia. Go tell them that they're stupid for believing in God. (laughs) There are more Christians dying now than at any other time. More Christians have died in the last hundred years for the name than in the 1900 years before it. And we won't be asked to do that here, I don't think. But we could experience a different death. A death of complacency. A death by sleep. You see, actually doing what Jesus said, committing to service the way he asked, is the other side of the coin, the other side of the martyrdom coin, the other side of the coin of being beaten and stoned. See, our job is to go out there and to do the things no one would blame us for not doing. Our job is to be more than people understand. Our job is to look very unusual because we're following Jesus. Somebody once said, There is something wrong if your life makes sense to non-Christians. So that's what we do. That's what this church is doing. God bless you for doing that. I can't wait to see more. I can't wait to help. We're going out there, and we're going to make Jesus look beautiful. And the world will see.